brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Rep Radio on time, on target, and for the first time in a while, we are actually doing video again. If you happen to be watching this on YouTube, um, and if not, you can go over to YouTube. But we're in the studio. Is this going out live? No, not live. Oh, but we're okay. we're gonna put it up <laughs> after. I haven't been doing the live stream just because it's actually it's like so much more to do than to just record it and make this thing work. So um, yeah, I mean. Hopefully this recording goes well and we're able to like make the whole thing work. But uh, we should just get right into everything. You'll see with us if you're on um, the YouTube and like I said, you check that out. Uh, Joseph Lefebvre, our new writer for the news rep, writer on finance and how conflict affects the global marketplace, is on with us, former EMT and engineer for Lockheed Martin. Thanks for doing this with us, man. It's, uh, it's cool to finally meet you and, and speak for the first time. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Um, it's been a uh, it's been a good month so far. So I've been on staff, really enjoying it. Yeah, appreciate it, Joe. You know, we uh, schedule so many guests for the podcast. Sometimes we forget to mine from the home the home team, so to speak, and uh, get some of our own staff on who are, have some pretty interesting stories to tell as well. Yeah, I listened to the uh, the recent episode with Alex Holings, and that guy is. Uh, a wealth of, of knowledge and stories. So I enjoyed listening to that. Yeah. Alex is great, man. Um, so before we get into everything, I actually wanted to mention to the audience, some cool stuff. Softrepradio.com is now up. So we now have our own website. Chris is building an app that's going to be up this week. I'm really excited for that, but check out the new site. Uh, I really love the new layout and it's cool that we're kind of separating our own brand and we're also on Spotify. So if you could check out uh, Spotify, you can listen to Soft Rep Radio on there now for the first time. Um, before we get into any of your pieces, Joe, I, I figured we would talk about this as we were setting everything up. I did not realize, and it was just kind of making small talk and wondering how you got familiar with the site, that you're a friend of Ed Derrick, who we had on for episode 315, where we talked about Extortion 17. And that guy wrote some incredible stuff. So I was just wondering about your friendship with Ed. So I uh, first talked to Ed a little over a year ago when I was I was writing for the local news site here in Shreveport, Louisiana, rookie journalist. And I was going to do a story about the local National Guard here. And I reached out to a friend who had had Ed Derrick on his podcast. I said, hey, can you put me in contact with Ed? You know, I got a lot of questions about how a civilian journalist should act when covering a military unit and uh he said yeah ed was more than happy to talk to me we started talking uh, kind of developed a friendship and i look at ed kind of like a mentor and every time i go back out with the national guard i'll, I'll call Ed. i'll be like hey man here's what i'm thinking 
Um, you know, is this, does this sound good? Are you tracking? And he kind of gives me pointers, you know, on how, how a civilian should approach a military unit when they're writing about, you know, how to not get in the way, how to tell an objective story. Um, you know, just kind of even some field craft stuff as far as like, cause he's done a, some pretty significantly long embeds with the Marines, I think in Afghanistan. So he's a wealth of information and uh, super great guy. And he's definitely helped me uh, in my career. So when I uh, first applied to the news rep, I reached out to Ed and I said, Hey, you know, I, I think you guys have been, I think you have been on there before. And he said, yeah, they're great guys. You know, Jack's a great guy. And, um, so after that, I was like, yeah, this is definitely where I want to be if Ed gives the approval. And it's been great since. So. Yeah, that's great. You know, Ed, uh, what I like about Ed is that he's spent enough time on the subject matter he covers that he's developed some real expertise on things like uh, military rotary wing aviation. Uh, um, you know, as you said, he's just spent a significant amount of time with those guys and, uh, and can speak to those things quite in depth, which... Unfortunately, it's not necessarily the fault of any particular journalist. It's just the way the field is uh, developed and designed is that uh, you get assigned stories, um, not so much here at this or at our outlet, but you know, if you work for uh, Newsweek or USA Today or any of those big ones, I mean, you're getting so much stuff thrown at you and you're being pulled in so many different directions that you don't have any time to develop any real expertise on any of the subjects. You, you end up knowing... Yeah. Um, about nothing because you're bouncing around so often. Yeah, he is, uh, you know, when it comes to, he's done some amazing pieces on just the, uh, the national guards, high altitude training out there in Colorado. Yes. Um, and then extortion one seven. I mean, I, I remember when I was first reading the book, I was like, this is fucking incredible. Just the amount of technical knowledge mm-hmm. that was in there and the way he's able to explain torque and the engine power to a guy, like me, who's kind of stupid, you know, and be like, oh, I, I get this. So, yeah, I, th- I think that book was very, it, it was and is very helpful to the public who are trying to wrap their minds around um, some of the things that happened in Afghanistan, particularly around Extortion 17, but even more so than that, just rotary wing aviation, military rotary wing in general. Um, you know, I, even for someone like myself, you know, who flew on some of those helicopters in Afghanistan, but I mean, Ed just knows way, way more about it than I ever would. And, uh, you know, reading his book is, is a huge learning experience. Yeah. So same here. And his, his first book, um, what was it called? Oh, uh, Red Wings, right? Yeah. It was about Red Wings, um, Operation Red Wings and Whalers. Yeah. Victory, it's called Victory Point. That's, That's right. right. Victory yep. Point. And even that is a, a wealth of information about the conflict in Afghanistan, the rise of the Taliban, and uh, also about how the Marine Corps structured, you know, especially because, you know, I'm pretty familiar with the structure of, of an Army combat unit, you know, from, from spending time with them. But a Marine Expeditionary Unit is a totally different beast. They have totally different vernacular and... Um, so getting to, you know, that, that book does an excellent job of explaining kind of the differences between the service and, and how the Marines fought in Afghanistan. So what brought you into this field? It's a tough question. I've done a lot of different jobs. You know, I, I'm kind of always chasing that, that, uh, that carrot, that grass always green or looking for something I enjoy. Um, I enjoyed writing and I was like, well, how can I make a living writing? And I found journalism and ended up writing for my 
local website up here in Shreveport, Shreveport News, and I just started covering you know random stuff. I think the first thing I covered was a a wiener dog race <laughs> at one of our casinos, <laughs> and I covered a, a playground that had a bad graffiti problem. And then I uh, was driving to the dog park one day, and I saw the National Guard armory up here. And I said, you know, I don't really know anything about what these guys do. I mean, we have Barksdale Air Force Base with the B-52s across the, the river, and they get a lot of press. But I was like, you know, I don't really know what, what the Guard unit does here. I reached out to the Louisiana National Guard Public Affairs. They were like, like, yeah, dude, come on. So I went and ended up spending some time with them while they were doing their spur ride, uh, which is, you know, the, the Guard the Guard unit up here is a, a cavalry unit, so they have that real real deep cavalry traditions, one of which is the spur ride where soldiers that are newer to the unit and, and soldiers that are um, you know, kind of like your junior NCOs and, and senior specialists, they're kind of looking to prove themselves. So they go through what's called the spur ride, which is a, a, week, a weekend-long evolution. It's like a 13-mile ruck march. And then a, diff- a lot of different, uh, you know, basic warrior tasks specific to their job as, as cavalry, which is um, reconnaissance. So it'll be, you know, you have to clear a jam on a M2, you know, machine gun or don your your mop suit. I'm not sure what the what the technical term is, but you know, the chemical protective gear. Um, do all that kind of stuff, and if they do it in a certain amount of time and they do it all correctly, uh, they get awarded the silver spurs, which is. Um, you know, a kind of a badge of honor. So that's it's very like, unique uh, to the, like Cavs version of the expert infantry badge. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. That's well, a good way to put it. This is a good transition actually, because one of the things you wanted to get into is that you're writing a multi-piece series on national guards unit and how they're training for JRTC. Um, so I'd like to hear about like what, what you have. In yeah. Store for that well, well, first lay out what JRTC is for, you know, we have a, a wide enough audience that there are civilians and people listening to this who don't know what JRTC is. So part of it is, you know, this part of the educational experience of this podcast sometimes is like Ed Durock did or Derek did when he came on the podcast is kind of starting from the ground up and explaining aviation in his case where JRTC in, in, in the case of your story. Right. So JRTC is the Joint Readiness Training Center down here at Fort Polk, Louisiana, and it's a um, it pretty much prepares units, specifically combat units, to go overseas. So it certifies them to be deployed. So a unit will go to JRTC, and it's almost like a simulated deployment. And they'll have um, an opposition force. They'll have to counter. They'll have to um, live in the field and be self-sustaining. And they'll have to go through all of their different uh, warrior tasks or, or unit tasks. So in the, the guard units, the 256 Infantry uh, Brigade Combat Team, you know, so they're going to deploy into JRTC, and it's going to just be like going to a deployment overseas. They're going to have to uh, you know, do reconnaissance of the battle area. They're going to have to set up their supply lines and their tactical operations centers. They're going to have to get their soldiers fed and provide medical care. So it's really a simulated deployment, and what it allows um, the units to do is, is test their their abilities before they go downrange, before they deploy, to make sure that everything they need to do has been checked off. And uh, JRTC is designed for, like, entire battalions to go through, isn't it, or brigades? I think it's brigades. Yeah. And then they have a... Uh, a in-home op- opposition force that resides at 
Fort Polk, and they're the ones who will be playing the bad guys. And they have, like, helicopters um, and stuff, too. I mean, it's pretty serious. Yeah, and, and what's great about JRTC is that depending on the global threats that the military is facing, they can change JRTC to make it mimic what our soldiers are likely to face. So, um, you know, early 2000s, you know, middle 2000s, when, uh, you know, going into Iraq, you know, JRTC was very much focused on fighting a, a, uh, a militia and very much, you know, urban fighting like we saw in, um, you know, Baghdad and, and Ramadi or uh, Fallujah. So, but, you know, as, as, you know, Russia and North Korea and different more, you know, states, more countries become the likely, uh, our next likely adversary, we're able to change JRCC, JRTC to mimic that. They can change so, the know. scenarios. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I absolutely. Um, yeah, you're just saying that they can change the scenario based on the force structure of the enemy that the troops are going to be facing overseas. So, like, it could be uh, East Ukraine for one evolution, and then it could be, you know, insurgents in Iraq for another based on where that unit's deploying, right? Right, exactly. And they, they even bring in role players that speak the native languages. So when I was at uh, over this summer at at a XCTC, which is a scaled down version of JRTC, you know, they had guys um, in these made up hamlets speaking Arabic dressed as you would see, you know, a man in, in Iraq or um, Afghanistan. So it's, it's, it's a very good concept that the army has to, to really prepare soldiers for, hey, this is what you're going to see and hear overseas. And it, and it allows commanders at a more uh, staff level to practice moving, you know, moving their entire elements in a, in a simulated battle so what's your story specifically about so i'd like to the the story is going to be about this one unit up here the uh, second of the 108th cavalry squadron who i've spent a lot of time with and it's a really good group of of men and women really hard-working guys and the story is going to track their progression from now going to jrtc seeing all the different things they're doing to get ready you know um how the individual soldiers are, are getting themselves prepared and how the commanders of the unit are getting the unit prepared. So it's going to kind of be a piece that focuses on how does a commander, a, a national guard commander, you know, get his unit ready for deployment because the year after JRTC, um, the second of the 108th and their parent unit, the two, five, six infantry brigade combat team is slated for a deployment. So it's really going to be the story of, you know, how do you take National Guard soldiers who only do this once a month and how do you ramp them up to where they're deployable? Right. Could you speak a little bit about what a CAV unit is uh, in today's military? I, again, because some people are, are going to find that uh, my question kind of passe, um, but there are others who, who are like cavalry. What the hell? Why do we have cavalry in today's military? <laughs> right. So there's different types, right? Like there's the armored cavalry, which would be uh, – you know, in tanks, the, the unit I'm following with are I think they're light mechanized. So they have Humvees and, um, some kind of artillery spotting vehicles, but their job is the cavalry's job is to go ahead of the main element and act as a reconnaissance unit. So they're a quicker, they're able to get in and out of spaces and move around the battle space quicker. And, uh, their job is to kind of find the enemy so that the main infantry force can come in and destroy it. And they, you know, they trace their lineage back to cavalry from like the Civil War, which had a similar role, you know, uh, moving into an area quickly, 
scouting it out and then coming back. And, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't cavalry structured a little bit differently than, uh, than say the infantry? Right. So uh, a cavalry, so an infantry, you know, uh, you would call a, a cavalry battalion is, is called a squadron mm-hmm. and a company becomes a troop. Because that's the formation that's based on the old school cavalry, isn't it? Uh, like actually right. on horses back in the old days. Right. And even, uh, you know, the, their unit designators, like the second and the 108th, I think they, tra- they trace their lineage back to, you know, the 108th cavalry brigade from years and years ago. One of the reasons so this, def- I, I was just going to say, and I'll let you get back to what you're saying. One of the reasons, though, I think this is going to be a really cool series of articles for the readers is I get emails all the time sent to softrep.radio at softrep.com. I actually got one just recently that's like, hey, have you guys ever had any National Guard, you know, members on? And the answer is really no. And we, you know, we talk mm-hmm. Green Berets. We talk uh, Army Rangers and Navy SEALs here. We recently had some uh, Air Force, and we've had MARSOC. And I think that there is an interest in learning more about National Guard, especially in this case, training for JRTC. So I think this is going to get a lot of interest. Yeah, well, well, I hope so. Um, it's a it's a really great group of soldiers, and and the mission they do is really tough. And you know, because they have that citizen soldier mentality, you know, they they train once a month for their jobs and they go back to the civilian world. So it's, it's a lot of pressure on them as individuals to maintain the standard, you know, while also having to work a civilian career. And, um, you know, like I, like I said, that's how I, I first got into them. Cause I was like, I know very little about them. And, uh, you know, this unit especially appears made two wartime deployments to Iraq and, you know, and they fought, they fought really hard. And, um, especially being here in Louisiana, you know, not only do they deploy wartime, you know, they're also, have a big time stateside mission with all the natural disasters. You know, I think some of the guys from the 256 Infantry Brigade combat team, IBCT, you know, they came back from Iraq in 2005, you know, a month before Hurricane Katrina hit. Yeah, and I'm also very adamant that we continue to cover, you know, the our, the troops. You know, I hate to throw that, that term around in quotes like some generality, the troops, but that we have these guys who are deploying overseas to combat. And uh, it's it's too easy for the American public to forget that that's happening and that these guys are over there. And um, sometimes we only hear about them and what they're doing when some sort of disaster occurs. You know, a helicopter gets shot down in Afghanistan right. or something like that. Um, but we continue to deploy troops to combat all the time. And that's something that we have to, uh, I see our website and our job as being reminding our country about that um, every day, if need be, you know, we're, we're not going to let up on that. And sometimes um, my, myself, for sure, um, I've covered um, the special operations community, um, not exclusively, but mostly. And um, that can turn into somewhat of a, a mistake or, or lead people to some false impressions as well. And that the bulk of the deployments are being done by the conventional military. And those guys are pulling most of the weight in places like Afghanistan. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting, you know, when you look at the entire narrative of the, of the global war on terror, you know, like you said, there's a lot of stuff about special operations forces. And those guys fight really hard, you know, and, and that's not... Um, you know, undeserved. And there's a lot of stuff. You just had Sean Parnell, I think on. Yeah. Or Chris Parnell. Great. And you know, I read his book. You got it. He was, what was it? Sean Parnell. You had it right. Yeah. And I think he was, he was infantry, right? 
At least yeah. the first book Infan- he was infantry in. Infantry PL, yeah. So there's there's that that side of the narrative has been told, and and uh, you know the Marine side's been told by guys like Derek. But the National Guard's role in the global war on terror, in my opinion, has remained somewhat absent of the whole narrative. And um, you know after. You know, before 9-11, when, when it was the end of the Cold War, the Guard kind of scaled down and, and they were kind of thought as that strategic reserve. But as soon as 9-11 happened and we opened up a two-front war in Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, there's only, you know, a certain amount of infantry divisions we have in the Army. And we really needed our Guardsmen, especially our combat arms Guardsmen, to come in and start making those wartime deployments because we just didn't have enough guys. So when you look at the entire narrative of the global war on terror, the guard has really played a significant role in that because they were needed. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. So I'm, uh, I'm excited to see where this story goes and it'll definitely be good to put that information out there. So for, for the public, for the readers, and they can check it out. Um, do you yeah. want to also get into a little bit of some of your other recent stories? Um, like there, there's the one we were looking at actually that I know you, you wanted to talk about. Um, regarding uh, the Ebola virus and you know some of the continued issues that are happening in uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo in Uganda. So, yeah, Ebola's back for the second time this year in the DRC. Um, the first outbreak happened in the beginning of the year on the western side. And then I think in August, it was beginning of August, this new outbreak on the eastern side near the border of Uganda um, began. And we've really kind of seen an explosion, not maybe not an explosion, but a, definitely a rapid uh, increase in the amount of patients that are becoming infected because health work, healthcare workers are having such an issue getting into yeah. the affected areas because of regional violence, you know, specifically the uh, allied democratic forces and other radical Islamist militias that operate in that border region. So it's really interesting from a con from a conflict perspective how regional violence affects healthcare workers and being able to provide healthcare in remote areas. Yeah, I mean that's a really important point. I mean whether it's the Ebola virus or, or something like AIDS, you know, we have the healthcare, we have the technologies, the medical technologies to be able to grapple with these issues. But, you know, some people in in remote places or impoverished areas of Africa don't have access to that health care. And you see these little outbreaks, um, which is unfortunate. I mean, when we have kids dying of, of diseases that are that are treatable. Right. And a lot of it is also, um, you know, not the unfamiliarity of the local populace with the disease. You know, yeah, Ebola has been present in Uganda, I think, three times before. And it's been on the western side of the DRC. But this is the first time, you know, northern Kivu, which is the province in the DRC, that it's that spread. I think it's the first time that Ebola has ever broken out there. So the local populace is, is really unfamiliar with the virus, um, really unfamiliar with, you know, how to prevent its spread. And I'm sure afraid. You know, I'd, be, I'd be terrified. What, what are the threat groups active in this region that are preventing uh, healthcare workers from getting into the area? So the biggest one is the Allied Democratic Forces, which is an Islamist or Islamist uh, militia that's kind of based. They're based in Uganda, but they oftentimes will do cross-border activities and, and fight and do attacks against healthcare workers and against UN peacekeepers um, in the DRC. 
And the, the ADF, the Allied Democratic Forces, the ADF, they're allied with guys like Al-Shabaab and the Lord's Resistance Army. <laughs> nice. I like the rebranding, Allied Democratic Forces. <laughs> yeah. It's always like a jumble of, uh, you know, seemingly, it's like double talk. Well, that's like the, 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 the communist groups always had wonderful acronyms, you know, and when you hear like the words peoples and democratic in there, you know, they're probably none of those things, but, uh, yeah, whenever, oh, go ahead, sir. No, go ahead. I, I was just going to say that, you know, the Islamist groups are usually a little bit more in your face, you know, calling themselves the Islamic state or Al Qaeda, this or that. Right. And what's, what's interesting is someone on uh, the news rep, one of the commenters on the piece asked me, she goes, hey, did you, uh, do we have any troops currently stationed in the area? And I'm, and I'm, I'm trying to get a hold of AFRICOM yes, sir. to get that answer. Yes, we do. But I know that, <laughs> oh, what did you say, sir? We do. <laughs> what's, uh, what's their mission over there? Um, it's the, well, we were doing a fit mission in Uganda with, uh, some other ancillary stuff tacked onto it. And I mean, I know we've had people going back and forth through the Congo, but, uh, I mean, it's been fairly like light footprint. I, I wonder if uh, the funding got yanked from the Uganda mission or if that's still ongoing. I'd have to look into that. I know that the, um, you know, army SF, how, how what's the best way to, to speak about the army special forces group? I mean, in what regard? Like if, like if I just, you know, Green Berets or Army SF or what's the, what's the most understood term, do you think? Uh, well, technically, you know, as far as like how the Army has these guys listed in their, in their task organization is as special forces, U.S. special forces. But that term confuses the public because they hear that and they, they think like, oh, se- seal, SEALs are special forces or I thought uh, that Rangers originally. are special forces. When I originally came onto the site, I was confused by that. I was like, I thought special forces is everybody. And then, you know, eventually I got onto it but i mean i feel like all the terms are fine this reminds me of um this reminds me of our conversation last episode about the unit the unit (laughs) yeah but then well then so you'll have sf guys actual special forces soldiers or others are we'll refer to ourselves as green berets but then there are other guys in special forces will say well a green beret is a hat that's not who we are so you get into this whole like shit show about, (laughs) about what we call ourselves and um, it's it's part of the reason uh, I think the public remains a little bit confused about special forces, too, is because what do we call ourselves um, and what we are? And so that's it's right. one of those things we have to articulate. But, I mean, you, if you call them special forces or Green Berets, I think either is, is perfectly acceptable to my mind. Somebody mowing their lawn outside? Yeah, I hear, I hear that. Yeah, sorry about that. No, it's all good. That happens without fail. Like whenever you're ready to record, all of a sudden somebody starts working on their back deck right where you, <laughs> wherever you are. So I'm at a friend's house because my wife and I have seven dogs. Oh, and wow. I was like, well, I can't do it at home. They're going to go nuts. <laughs> so I specifically came here to my friend with no dogs and you know, I got the guys going in the yard. We will make it, but we'll make re- it work. Yeah. But, but the reason I yeah. asked... Uh, you know, I know that we did have special forces soldiers in Uganda last year hunting. Joseph Kony, who is the leader of the Lord's Resistance Army, which is a loose allied with the new Allied Democratic Forces. Yeah, it turned into a kind of a joke. I mean, Kony was across the border in, in uh, CAR, Central African Republic, as I recall. And we didn't have any kind of we weren't given any kind of cross border authority to go over there and get him. Um, so, I mean, guys were kind of like just doing the fit mission over in Uganda. That wasn't really going to go anywhere. 
Got you. So if people want to check out this article, by the way, it's titled Ebola Continues to Spread, Threatens Economies of the DRC and Uganda. You published it on October 4th. Um, and it's interesting stuff, man. I mean, you, you talk about the numbers listed here of 161 confirmed cases of the Ebola virus, 105 deaths. And it's just a reminder that Ebola is a, a very different problem over there than over here. You know, when it, I remember when it came over here and there was this huge scare, and I believe we only had one confirmed death, right? So it's just, it's an entirely different problem when you're dealing with a uh, pretty much no healthcare system. Right. And no real uh, education system either. You know, it's, I, I feel like a lot of us that have, you know, researched the bull, I have a lot better idea of, of what it does and how it spreads people who are living there because they've never been exposed any kind of education and if you if you don't know what it is you know and, and your and your family member gets it and then a couple of days they're just throwing up massive amounts of blood and bleeding from every orifice i mean it's got to be just horrifying do you guys remember errol lewis um in new york you might remember because it was local got some crap <laughs> literally because he, during the whole like scare of ebola in america he he was like, if you see like crap on the ground, don't eat it. It like that was like his advice for not getting Ebola. But the truth is, it actually is very hard to get in America because of our healthcare yeah. system. And if if we do, you know, they'll be able to treat it. But I do remember the whole scare where at airports they were, you know, quarantining people and and people were legitimately scared because they saw the amount of deaths in Africa and they thought this would be a similar problem yeah. in the U.S. And then. There were less alarmist groups out there, um, like the um, – I'm trying to think of the name of, of the actual um, group. I think they're like a lobbyist group that a uh, family member of mine used to be a part of, uh, the National Council of uh, – it's a science group. But anyway, there were like less alarmist groups out there saying, don't be so worried about Ebola. A lot of this is media hype, and they turned out to be right. Yeah. I, I mean, that's the kind of the tragedy of it is that it is treatable and, you know, these people don't have to suffer like this. But because they're in these impoverished areas, war-torn areas, it, it provides an opportunity for, you know, some of these healthcare crises to break out. Yeah. And, and um, you know, the, the article is definitely not meant to scare, you know, the American public and, and, and the readers that, you know, there's going to be some insane Ebola outbreak. But, um you know, and, and like you said, it is relatively hard to catch. I mean, it's not like the flu where you can just sneeze and it's airborne. I mean, Ebola, I, if I believe, if I'm correct, it has to be transmitted through body fluid and, and direct touch. Um, but, I mean, you know, I'm not really scared to get the flu, even though it kills a lot more people a year. But I'm, <laughs> I'd be really scared about Ebola. So you have that kind of fear and that kind of you know, visceral reaction to it. Did any of you guys actually get the flu shot on, on that note? No. I feel like every year Not they yet. tell you you should get the flu shot, and I, I never do. I, I've never gotten it since I, I talked to a friend of mine about it, and he said it's, the flu shot is basically like the roll in the dice because there's no flu. The flu is like thousands and thousands of different yeah. strains, and they don't know which strain is going to break out in whatever part of the country you live in. So there's like some st – statistics are going on in the background where they're trying to predict which strain of the flu is going to be in your area and give you the flu shot to inoculate you for that strain. But nobody really knows. I mean, it's like predicting the weather. Yeah. So since it's just like kind of, you know, rolling the dice, I, I never really bothered getting it. 
And also, all of us are, you know, I, I know we're, we're both in our 30s. I don't know if you're in your 30s, Joe. 28. 20, okay. So tw- late 20s, early 30s, relatively. I feel like I'm 38. <laughs> you know, relatively healthy guys. I think it's, a, it's more of a concern if you are like an elderly person. The sure. flu could become deadly. For us, it, 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 we're not in that category. Right. And they recommend healthcare. You know, my wife's uh, studying to be a doctor. So they, they recommend, you know, medical workers get the flu shot, not so much for them, but, you know, the to patients. protect their patients yeah. from spreading it. Yeah. And I think state by state, they have laws on, you know, if, if you are mandated to get the flu shot, if you're if it's mandatory to get certain vaccines. And I do understand that you're working around elderly people, you're working around people who are more susceptible to these type of diseases. And I know people like to act like it's a freedom issue, but it's the same thing also with like vaccines you have to get at birth. If, you know, a certain large portion of the population aren't getting these vaccines, then you might as well not have them at all. And then we're going to bring back these diseases from like the Middle Ages. Yeah. And you see these kids who are coming down with like measles, mumps and rubella or uh what is it? Whooping cough and like uh, Jesus Christ, really? Like all because like Alex Jones yeah. said, you know that that <laughs> vaccines are evil. I, I saw some news article, and I, I mean I don't know the the veracity of it, but um, they were saying that there's there's like rich neighborhood somewhere in Los Angeles, they have um, lower vaccine rates than third world countries in sub-Saharan Africa because the parents wow. are these like yuppies who aren't having their kids vaccinated. Well, Alex, yeah, they, they bet on. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, what were you saying, Joe? I think some of them bet on you know that concept of herd immunity. Yeah. Whereas, if everyone else is around me vaccinated, I don't have to vaccinate yeah. my kid because the disease can't enter anyways. But if everyone thinks like that, exactly. Yeah. I, what I was going to say though is uh, Alex Hollings. You were talking about the last time he was on. He brought this up. I think the last two times he was on, and it's. Uh, no surprise to us, I guess, might be a surprise to other people that some a lot of the anti-vaccine propaganda is coming out of Russia. Yeah, they did. Uh, it, it came out in one of the wow. like, congressional studies, actually. And it, it was just like wherever the, the Russians see like a, a fissure in society that they can exploit, they'll jump on that. And, um, you know, the, the anti-vaxxer issue is one of those like, oh, you can get Americans arguing and fighting with one another. And the point behind that from their perspective is, well, if you're arguing about stupid domestic issues like that, I mean, not that it's stupid, but I mean, I mean, it's stupid like that we're having that argument. But if you're arguing about that, then you're not arguing about, you know, all the nefarious things that Russia is up to. And so that's kind of the point. It's just a, a distraction, essentially. Like I was reading today about there's this viral video people were sharing on Facebook and I saw friends of mine sharing it. It was this girl who was going and um, pouring bleach on people on the subway who were manspreading. I saw that. Yeah. And uh, it turns out to be some sort of hoax that was propagated by, you know, uh, Russia Today and some of those. And, and the people, the men in that video were like paid actors. So it's just one of, another one of those things like you just get people outraged about stupid, inconsequential garbage and it distracts attention away from some of the things that are happening in the world that we should really be paying attention to. Yeah, it, it's tough, you know, and, and when people want to have those kind of almost nonsensical arguments, um, you know, because of what they see on Facebook, it, it, it makes it hard to for real discussions about things that can really implicate the country to, to take place. But I'll say that they got me with that bleach thing. I believed it. I would love to do like a study um, on, on this 
particular subject because what I've noticed, and this is purely anecdotal, is that the like baby boomer generation, including the special forces veterans that I am acquainted with, seem to be especially susceptible to that kind of propaganda. Like, they're, they're, I mean, they're sharing it like nonstop on social media, um, taking it as fact. And I mean, who would have thought that Green Berets who served during the Cold War would be like maybe the most at-risk population for Russian propaganda? I mean, I don't know if they are really the most susceptible, but they seem highly susceptible just in my own casual observations. And I'd love to do a study on like why that is, because it's so counterintuitive. You would think these would be the people who are the most inoculated to foreign Russian propaganda. Yeah, but it seems like they're the most susceptible to it. It's kind of sad too. I mean, like you said, these guys are, are Cold War veterans, but in in some respects, they're still fighting that same battle. You know, we all are with that outside yeah. influence of propaganda. Yeah, absolutely. And so, I think the reason Russia is putting out propaganda like the uh, the vaccine stuff that we were talking about goes back to something we've discussed many times in this podcast that a lot of the Russian propaganda is just about creating um, distrust yeah. in the system for Americans, distrust in government. So just the same way with, you know, what they call the election hack. Oh, you know, our elections are rigged. Um, and then also Russia funding both sides of protests, whether it's Black Lives Matter and, you know, liberal side of things and, and pro-Trump rallies. And something like this creates an idea of, oh, they're lying to us about the election. They're lying to us about vaccines. Yeah. And it's not even about who the president is. It's just about us feeling like we're being lied to about everything. Well, any, through propaganda. Like I said, anywhere they can find a fissure in society, they will try to exploit it. Um, you know, if you watch like RT or something like that, you'll think there's like a freaking race war going on in America. Yeah. And I mean, but in reality, I mean, you go out, uh, you know, I take my kid out to the playground and she's playing in the sprinkler system with, uh, you know, African-American and Hispanic children, uh, and everybody else. Uh, I, I can't believe you would allow that. Uh, yeah, I know. I, I it sounds, <laughs> White supremacist it, it sounds crazy, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we, we live in a multi-ethnic, uh, society and for the most part, we get a Along with each other. I mean, it's not to say we don't have problems, but you know, the Russian propaganda will make it seem like we're all at each other's throats and there's some like race war about to break out. But you know, when you go out and actually live in the real world, you see that's not the case. I think that's the danger of, of you know our generation living on their phones and, and losing that grasp of reality. Like like you said, I mean, you look on Facebook and you're like, man, everyone hates each other, but then you're out and about. And there's no, you know, there's no one's being violent to each other on a, on a day-to-day basis. And we're all, like you said, getting along, but you know, when you live with your face and your phone, like, I mean, I'm guilty of that. You know, it's easy to be, uh, take a pessimistic view on on current events and current situation. Perception is reality. Is it nice, nice time for a little plug of Alex's book, by the way, Alex Hong's book. Um, cause the book is all about information ops. So if you check that out, that's that's the subject of, of his latest book, which is doing really well. Um, I want to get into this other piece as yeah, well. Yeah. Why are oil prices up? Several factors. This is written by Joe. This is up on the newsrep.com. 
Crude oil prices rose sharply Wednesday, driven up by a decline. And this is last Wednesday, of course, not today, if you're listening to it up on Wednesday. Uh, driven up by a decline in the U.S. oil supply and the expected effects of a new wave of sanctions on Iran. Yeah. Iran is an influential member of the Organization of the Petroleum Exporting Countries, OPEC, and one of the world's largest producers. Brent crude, a benchmark oil, crossed the $80 per barrel mark earlier last Wednesday before coming to rest at $79.74 per barrel at the end of the day. This latest increase puts Brent's price at the highest level it's been since the end of May, according to Reuters. In addition to the impending sanctions on Iran, the U.S. stock of crude inventories fell by a dramatic 5.3 million barrels in the last week. This decline is vastly more substantial than the 805 barrels predicted by the um, and that's uh, is that 805,000 barrels? I'm sorry here because I'm looking at this article and the way it printed because it would be more than 805. Um, but yeah, 805,000. 805,000 barrels predicted by the uh, analysts from the U.S. Energy Information Administration. So this is interesting and, and one of those Un- consequences. Unforeseen consequences of uh, so-called America first policies. So, yeah, the, the sanctions on Iran are by far the biggest uh, factor affecting oil prices right now because uh, everyone's kind of, you know, they're going to, the sanctions are going to take effect in November. And, and everyone's trying to decide, okay, is Iran going to cease oil production? And is that they're going to drop world supply? Or are they going to be able to smuggle it out like they're trying to do, um, you know, offloading crude oil onto their existing tankers and, and try to work around the sanctions? So everyone's kind of holding their breath to see what the Iranian sanctions do to the world oil supply. Um, you know, the U.S. has talked to other OPEC countries, specifically Saudi Arabia, and asked them to increase production to make up for what we're going to lose with Iran. But um, until November hits... Everyone's going to be talking about the Iranian sanctions. Everyone's going to be speculating about it and, um, you know, just kind of wait and see what exactly Iran's going to do and what the uh, what the net effect is it going to be on, on global oil supply. So the only then, countries buying from Iran are really going to be China, Russia. Who else do you think? Venezuela. <laughs> well, Venezuela, Venezuela doesn't need to buy from them. But the one that's been in the news lately is India. Um, there are big up and coming, you know, yeah. big giant population and, and kind of going Good through point. an industrial period right now. So they're a massive consumer of oil and they've expressed interest that they're going to continue to buy Iranian oil despite the U S sanctions. So what do you think this means? I mean, are we going to head back into the era like we saw during the, uh, during the George W. Bush administration where gas shot up to uh, at its height, what was it like five fifty six dollars a, a gallon? Yeah. I mean, it's something like that. Yeah, I think when I first got my my driver's license and had to start paying for my own gas, it was like four dollars a gallon, and I was like, "I just walk." So um, <laughs> here in know, New York, it, here in New York, it went up quite a bit more than that. I remember around like before the before the Obama administration. I mean, it was pretty high at one point. Oh yeah, um, I think you know if, if Saudi Arabia does what they say they can do and. and and level out oil supplies, you know, we shouldn't see a giant increase in prices, but if they're unable to, and that supply goes down, we're definitely going to start feeling the effects as, you know, the price of a barrel of oil goes up. And then, um, 
you know, with India, India is kind of interesting because, you know, like, like, you know, earlier this year, we renamed our Pacific command to the Indo-Pacific command to kind of uh, include India and our sphere of influence and kind of extend them an olive branch of mm-hmm. being like, Hey, we're, you know, friendly neighbors. And uh, for the, them to, the Indians are freaking out about the Chinese getting into the Indian ocean. Right. And, uh, I think, I think Alex has written a lot about it. There's been a lot on the site about the different, you know, close calls that the U S Navy and the, and the Chinese Navy have had lately out there. Um, so we've kind of, you know, taken India aside and, and said more or less like, Hey, you know, you're going to come under our sphere of protection against the Chinese. So for them to go and say, we're still going to buy Iranian oil is kind of interesting. And it's going to be interesting to see how that affects the relationship between us yeah. and, and New Delhi. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting. And uh, it could be that the Indians are kind of holding out for something. Maybe they want something in exchange uh, from the United States, which uh, I don't know if I can hold that against them. They have their strategic interests. Um, But at least from my point of view, I think it behooves the United States to uh, strengthen our relationship with India as much as we can, considering the rising threat in the uh, Pacific. Especially, you know, India's, I mean, I, I agree with you, you know, you got to cut them some slack, especially because when you look at, you know, they're kind of in a precarious position, yeah. sandwiched between Pakistan and and uh, and China and, you know, two foes, you know, Pakistan and, and the Indians that that hate that bad blood goes back thousands of years. Yeah, they, I mean, they, they fought a war in the 1950s. It's a interesting relationship they have. And then there's everything going on with Burma right next door as well. So. They have a lot on their plate. Yeah, that's a, that's another uh, a horrible uh, humanitarian crisis going on in, in Burma and uh, Bangladesh. You know, I saw, I think I heard on the BBC that with the Rohingya Muslims that have been kind of yeah. pushed out of their lands in Burma, that the Bangladesh authorities are thinking about sending them to a deserted island and making that like their new Jeez. homeland. Yeah, India also has tremendous uh, domestic issues internally to overcome. Um, which, re- regarding, I mean, I'm, I'm I can't speak to it, uh, you know, with any kind of expertise. But I mean, I've read enough to see that from issues with poverty um, to um, trying to create a modern economy in that country to um, you know issues related to the caste system, all of these things kind of intertwine with one another in India and. Um, they're trying to modernize very quickly. And they've also kind of experienced some of the evil side of, of social media. If I remember yeah. correctly, there were some stories out where uh, lynch mobs were organizing using WhatsApp or uh, some kind of other yeah, well, app like that. I, I would argue that um, killing people of lower caste systems or lower castes in India, that's something that's been going on in rural areas for decades and if anything, social media is just making it um, more um, apparent, um, more in people's faces than, you know, a, a lynching would have been in the past, which is probably you could say the yeah. same thing for some of the sexual assaults um, that have, you know, really um, come to prominence because of social media. Um, and, you know, forced it's probably forced the Indian government to actually take some tangible actions, whereas in the past it would have gotten swept under the rug. So I guess there are, there are different ways of looking at it. Yeah, I think they're going through their kind of their own version of the Me Too movement as we speak. Yeah, a lot like of to, an ex- to an extreme. But yeah, yeah, you're right. So, 
And then uh, also with the oil, you know, we got Hurricane Michael out in the Gulf. I just saw today we're going to yeah. evacuate some of our rigs. So oil is one of those things where you have ongoing issues like, you know, the Iranian sanctions. And then you have kind of short, acute issues like, you know, natural disasters that can affect the market as well. So it's a it's an ever it's an ever changing, ever fluid uh, commodity. You're, you're from Florida originally, by the way. Is your area being hit by that or your family members or anything like that? No, I grew up on the East Coast, Good. but um, I went to school in Tallahassee in the, uh, in the Panhandle, so they're going to get wet. I, all my friends that still work, uh, EMS, where I used to work, I see they're all getting ready to work overtime and extra shifts, so I wish them, I wish them luck. Yeah, I'm sure we have listeners who are going to be hit by that. I mean, all over America and everywhere else, so, you know. We, uh, you know, keep us updated and we hope everybody stays yeah. as safe as possible during that. So any, anyway, I'm just wondering, Joe, what other pieces do you have in the works uh, for the future that we could look forward to? Um, I just did one the other day about uh, uh, merging markets. It's got, it kind of, you know, emerging markets are countries that are developing economies, but they're not, they haven't matured to the point where like the u.s stock exchange or uh, shanghai is so i uh, just did a piece about that a lot of people are looking to emerging markets right now as a good place to invest because prices are so low uh, but it's not a sure thing and, and the problem with emerging markets is a lot of those countries have really unstable or fragile political systems which can change the economy overnight you know uh, brazil is a, a perfect example uh, you know, they, I think they just elected a new president, the guy who was stabbed uh, on the ca- campaign trail. Remember that story? Yeah, I, I haven't been following Brazilian politics, quite frankly. <laughs> so I can't really Yeah, no, I don't, I, don't, I don't blame <laughs> you. Cool. But um, just, it's, you know, emerging markets is interesting because it's another thing where it looks like a sure thing, but uh, the political situation in the country can change it overnight. And you see that a lot more so than in developed countries that have a more stable and, and an older government. Well, I say this, they say the same thing about Mexico, right? That it, it has a, a tremendous natural resources and should be a global economic powerhouse, but because of the domestic political situation in Mexico, they, they just can't get there at this at this time. Right. And Mexico was a uh, speaking of other stories. You know, we just signed the the new NAFTA esque agreement with Mexico and yeah. Canada. So that's going to bring, it should bring more manufacturing jobs to the U S. Um, and I think it allows our dairy farmers to sell their product in Canada. So those are kind of the two big, two big wins for the United States. Be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen a lot um, but, of criticism uh, of it online because of the fact that Trump was so anti NAFTA and people are saying, you know, is this just NAFTA 2.0? Right. There's not a, there's not a ton of differences and, and each country, I think, walked away with a concession they wanted. You know, I think Canada really held on to the dairy, the dairy farm issue for a long time, but they ultimately wanted uh, something written in the contract, a mechanism that would allow Canada and the United States to settle trade disputes. And um, that was something that we caved on and finally gave them. So now there's that the new even the new NAFTA still has that provision set up. That allows Canada to, um, you know, challenge some of our trades practices, especially with lumber, like out in the Pacific Northwest. Interesting, man. So check out uh, 
Joe's work on the news rep, Joseph Lefebvre. And you could follow Joe on Twitter at Lefebvre, L-A-F-A-V-E, Joseph, at Lefebvre Joseph on Twitter. Anything else that you're plugging before we wrap this up? This has been a great discussion, man. Yeah. Yeah, I really enjoyed it, guys. This is my first time coming on a podcast. So if I was all over the place. No, or, not at all. Uh, no. Humbling. We'll do it again. But um, I'd like to, you know, we talked about Ed, Ed Derrick earlier. He's got two books coming out in 2019 that I'm really excited for. The first is called War Moments. It's going to be a collection of pictures he's taken of, of military uh, personnel at home and during deployments. And if you're familiar with Ed's work, I mean, he's a great photographer, photographer as well. Um, you know, he did the his his picture was on the cover of uh, Where Men Win Glory about Pat Tillman. And uh, his photography has been been featured in a lot of different magazines. So I've, that's, that's I've be a seen great some book. of uh, the pictures he's posted online. And I mean, yeah, you're absolutely. I agree. He's a super talented photographer. Yeah, and and, and uh, you know, I'll say this: having taken my own photos of uh, the National Guard when I was embedded with them, it's it's tough. It's photography, is something that you definitely have to work at. Yeah. And I definitely struggle with. So for him to be able to produce those images, I mean, he's definitely a talented individual. And a second book, I'm not sure if it's titled yet, but it's going to be about another group of Marines in Afghanistan as well, similar to Victory Point. Cool. That's awesome. So the um, if you want to check out the episode we actually did with Ed Derrick, that's one of our highest um, stream our you know highest numbers we've had streams for an episode. That was episode three fifteen where we talked about extortion seventeen. I'd love to have Ed back on when those books come. Yeah, out. yeah, sure. absolutely. He was an excellent guest. Yeah, Ed's, Ed's a great guy, and like I said, a wealth of information. Awesome, man. Well, thanks for doing this with us, Joe. Uh, I'm going to exit out of Joe's window here as we finish up okay. the live stream and we'll have you on again too joe yeah man really appreciate yeah, the this is great cool well we'll Thanks, talk guys. to you soon you'll see this up tomorrow on now it'll be on all our platforms which is soundcloud uh apple podcasts spotify and we'll have the video on youtube for the first time in a couple of months cool thanks man thank you yep cool that was great successful um successful video for the first time in a long time i know that you know i always have video problems and thank thank you for kirill who just is awesome and always you know helps me get everything back on track so yeah it looks great you know i know for the most part people listen um and they don't really watch the the video that we do but now that you know we have a nicer setup here maybe we'll get a few of you converted to checking it out and you can check out the soft rep um youtube page um wrapping things up here i do of course want to tell you about what's going on with crate club be sure to check out crate club that long anticipated collaboration watch i've been teasing that we did with nfw watches that is going to be in the next premium crate just talked to scott whitner this morning who told me that we have different tiers of membership depending on how prepared you want to be so like that for example that's in the premium tier and gift options are available as well um Scott was saying that we're working on bringing you 100% custom products as 2019 is approaching. Everything from sunglass cases to EDC bags, other manly products, and uh, in that Panthera camo design, which Jason came up with, with uh, Jason Kennitzer came up with, with Brandon Webb that we have the patent to, which is pretty cool. Um, so it's a club for men, by men. You can check that all out at crateclub.us 
Once again, that's CrateClub.us. If you're a dog owner, check this out. You're going to love this. We've partnered with Kuna, who is a team of trained canine handlers, picking out a box for your dog each month of healthy treats and training aids. It's custom built for your dog's size and age as well. The products are U.S. sourced, all natural, and they not only promote a healthy diet, but also promote being active with your dog. So whether we're talking a pit bull, a chihuahua, this is all for you. You can see all of that at kuna.dog. That's kuna.dog. It's efficient for you. Your dog is going to appreciate it as well, of course. And that's spelled C-U-N-A dot D-O-G. Before I tell you about the Spec Ops channel, I'm going to take a sip of water. Hey, well, in your, <laughs> during your pause, I'll point out, because it's an inadvertent product placement while we've been filming, uh, we're having the guests of this new book, Like War On, P.W. Singer and Emerson Brooking. Um, I'm reading the book now. I'm about two-thirds of the way through it, and it's all about uh, the weaponization of social media. So we'll have those guys on next it, week. Yeah, it'll be, yeah. it'll be up a week from Friday if you're listening to this as it goes live. I teased them coming on this episode, but we moved it. Um, but we're going to have both of those authors on. I think we'll be able to do the video with both authors, okay. so that should cool, be cool. man. So I have plenty of time to finish the book, so yeah, I like to know what I'm talking about when we have people come on. Sometimes, yeah, we sometimes I succeed, sometimes I don't. Kyle Mills, <laughs> uh, Kyle Mills' next episode, um, who has a new book out. I'm excited for that. Um, and so as I was saying, as a reminder for those listening, for a limited time, you can receive a 50% discounted membership to the Spec Ops channel. That's our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. The Spec Ops Channel premiere show Training Cell follows former Special Operations Forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country. Everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and much more. Again, you can watch this content by subscribing to the Spec Ops Channel that's at specopschannel.com. Take advantage of a limited time offer of 50% off your membership, only $4.99 a month, and you can check out the app developed by Chris. As I was saying before, we have a new website up, softrepradio.com. The app is coming, I believe, this week. And I don't know if there's any other news you want to get into as we wrap this up. I know you were talking about Nikki Haley resigning. Yeah, I mean. That's big. uh, Yeah, reports in the press. I mean, I don't think the whole story has come out yet. Um, But, yeah, they're saying she uh, that President Trump accepted her resignation. So it'll be interesting to see how that story plays out, because uh, at least it was my impression was that she was fairly bulletproof. Um, I know we don't really know the reason for the resignation yet, but it's an interesting development. Yeah, absolutely. So. As we're wrapping this up, be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. If you're a Spotify user, check out Spotify. I'm excited that we're on there. And the new website is softrepradio.com. Excited for a lot of great content um, as this month progresses, including a really big guest at the end of the month. I still don't have a date confirmed. Won't say who it is, but like very big name. Excited for that. All right. Peace out, everybody. Listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter 
at Soft Rep Radio.